The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. For the next hour, Monterey College of Law's Dean Mitchell Winnick and law professor Stephen Wagner will discuss current legal events and public policy issues that are affecting our daily lives. They will not provide individual legal advice. If you have a specific legal problem, you're encouraged to contact a lawyer for legal assistance. If you do not have a lawyer, contact the local bar association or lawyer referral service in your community for recommendations. And now, here's Wagner and Winnick on the law. Good day. Welcome to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. This is Mitch Winnick, President and Dean of Monterey College of Law, San Luis Obispo College of Law, and coming this summer, Kern County College of Law. And I am joined, as always, by my co-host, Stephen Wagner, law professor and attorney extraordinaire. Stephen, good day to you. Good Saturday to you, Mitch. How's it going there in studio? It's going just fine. I love the introduction music that Jason had for us. We had a little bit of rain going on here. He had a little bit of rain going on in the air. It was just beautiful. Yeah, yeah, I heard that. Was that the doors? I think it that was. was it yeah, was indeed. Good. All right, good. So adding to our bumper music, mixing that's, it up. That's exactly right. Yeah, that's good. Anyway, so you've selected our topic today, and I think yeah. it's a great one. Tell, tell us a little about what we're going to talk about today. Yeah, thanks, Mitch. I did. So, so we had been talking about a couple of constitutional issues to get uh, back up on topic on our program, and one that is very fresh for me is uh, involves the juvenile justice system and specifically the use of school safety or school resource officers, sorry. And uh, those are officers that serve a uh, very vital role in public schools. And to help us with our discussion today, we're lucky enough to have Cheryl Manley, who is one of my colleagues in the DA's office in San Luis Obispo County. And Cheryl is a very experienced prosecutor and she does uh, handle the lion's share of the juvenile cases in our office, and that includes her presiding over a collaborative group of people that are all very involved in the criminal justice system, and it will involve the uh, school resource officer and the role of that person. And I thought we'd talk about that because there's a number of issues that I think are very interesting, including the constitutional rights of public school students, things like searches on campus, uh, weapons on campus, and really the, the issue that's very, very well connected, and that is school discipline versus criminal acts. So I think there's a lot of misunderstanding in that area, and I think Cheryl can help uh help elucidate a lot of those issues for us. Well, that's great. I believe we have Cheryl on the line. Cheryl, welcome to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. Well, thank you, Mitch. Hi, Steve. Hi, Cheryl. Thanks for coming on board. I appreciate it. Oh, thanks for the opportunity. So, so Cheryl, Stephen gave the, the, the introduction there, and as he was talking about these issues, I think it's 
it's it's really interesting. Most of us haven't given a lot of thought, and I say most of us. Uh, that would include uh, my role as a parent as well as my role as an attorney. We just haven't given a lot of thought about the constitutional rights of students, particularly in K-12 public school. Uh, we've we've certainly seen a lot of of issues related to the safety of schools with the tragedies we've seen over the past couple of years. So t- tell us a little about your role and, and how that intersects with, with schools. Well, it's really timely, isn't it, with everything we're seeing in the media, and the media is actually a contributing factor in a lot of cases with students and how they perceive authority and law enforcement on campus. But it's my role is really to um, well ensure public safety. I mean that's what I'm sworn to do as a DA, and it's something I'm very um, passionate about. And also to bring this SROs together to provide training, to give them legal updates about trends in the law and safety on campus, and to make them available to each other to network and to have support. I think a lot of times SROs feel that they're, you know, they're considered kitty cops, quote unquote. You know, I've heard that a lot. And they have the hardest job. And, you know, they're entrusted with our kids. So, um, and they're peace officers. So I try to do as much as I can to validate the hard work they do and the dangerous job that they have in a lot of cases. So, Cheryl, that was a question that I'd asked Stephen a little earlier as we were preparing for this show. So in, in every case, the, the school resource officer, as you call an SRO, are they always a sworn police officer, which means they have gone through full police training, regardless of whether it's the police department or the sheriff's department, they're licensed to, kept to, to use a weapon or to carry a weapon, and they have the same responsibilities as any other police officer we would see patrolling the streets? They are, well, you have probation officers who are also peace officers. Okay. And you have, um, you have sworn law enforcement. And in our county, San Luis Obispo County, um, they are all peace officers. Um, administrators do work with them in collaboration. And the Ed Code, the Education Code in California, sets out what is required of the schools to set standards and policies for school resource officers on campus. And, and so for Steve, the most part, you're, the answer is yes, they yeah. are sworn people. Uh, Stephen had sent me a couple of cases that uh, evidently the, this issue of policy and who sets the policy ha- is now coming into the national limelight. Uh, there were a couple of you know, very unfortunate circumstances where in this day and age, you know, anyone with a cell phone can shoot a video. And we had allegedly school resource officers apparently acting badly uh, with students as far as being overly aggressive or overly violent with them. Is there a national policy? I mean, is this something that your community has that's different than in other states? So what, where do they look to get these rules or guidelines? Well, each jurisdiction can set their own policies, and then you have this umbrella of the Fourth Amendment, which um, all school searches are subject to the Fourth Amendment. They're just different, actually mitigated or lower standards. 
but um, we can talk about the legal aspects of that in a little bit. Yeah, but you've actually got, this is Stephen's yeah. favorite thing, all right? Stephen, you want to weigh in on the difference between probable cause and reasonable grounds or reasonable suspicion? Sure, I, I mean, there's no, way we're, there's no way we can get through this topic without talking about the Fourth Amendment, that's for sure. And that, of course, right. relates to search and seizure and the protocol and what rules apply with respect to searches of public school students. Um, before we get there, though, Cheryl, I thought it, was, it would be interesting to maybe define or expand a little bit more on the role because I did share with Mitch that I thoroughly enjoyed my opportunity to meet a lot of the stakeholders and the participants in the meeting that you presided over yesterday. And it's really, really impressive that you've got that kind of collaboration and it really does appear that there's unity and purpose. Um, with respect to the, the role of probation officers that might be assigned the role of uh, school resource officers, are this is really relating to the protocol question Mitch was asking as far as what rules apply. How much interplay do the individual schools have? For instance, if you looked at San Luis Obispo County and the school, it, it, are there vast differences between schools or is it pretty, pretty uniform? Well, it is uniform in our county. I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that they communicate with each other, that um, they work together, and it, it is uniform. There are, um, as I said before, the Ed Code, the schools set out their policies, and they are uniform, and they are documented and written in the school handbooks, which all schools have a copy of, and all students and parents have to review and sign so there, there is uniformity in our county, definitely, and I think it has to do with the fact that we have such a good interaction and network of SROs that all work together. And we have a lot of probation officers at the schools, and they are so fantastic. They're really interactive with the students. As far as a national policy, just to go back to that, um, that previous question from Mitch, then there is a National Association of School Resource Officers, and... There are tens of thousands of um, jurisdictions where they train, they educate, they have a national conference, which I've been to, which is um, very educational. Um, um, Bernard James from Pepperdine University is their legal advisor, and he keeps them legally updated. So there is some uniformity in that a lot of smaller jurisdictions adopt what the National Association of School Resource Officers provides as guidelines. In our county, it is uniform, and um, all the officers really do a good job. They're very um, compassionate with their students. They mentor them. They volunteer on the campus. They teach. They coach. So you have, you have a singular mindset with the SROs here, and I think it's because they have a lot of communication with each other, in addition to what the schools set out as far as policies. Yeah, that's great. And then, you know, leading to the next issue that I think will probably bring us into our first break, Cheryl, but I, I did want to discuss the issue of search and seizure and and really the what typically would be called police officer and citizen contact kind of scenarios. Of course, it's different here because we're now talking about school resource officers and student contact, but speak a little bit about uh, the issues connected to the Fourth Amendment, and that would be the right against unreasonable searches and seizures, and 
what rules, if any, are a little bit different in the public school setting? Well, the main case is the TLO case, TLO versus New Jersey, and it's set the standard which is still followed. Um, it's kind of a two-pronged standard for to use a legal term. Um, and, and let me just say that it's yeah, it's been thir- a 30-year-old case. So so this is right. a, a reminder to our listeners that you know periodically we rattle off these seminal uh, Supreme Court cases and yet here's one where it was written 30 years ago and now this is the standard we're going to talk about still today, aren't we? Yep, that's right. Good good knowledge, Mitch. I like that. I still teach that in criminal procedure. Yep, yeah. absolutely. So, so sorry to interrupt, but go ahead. Right. Talk about... No, no that's, no, that's fine. It's a good point because that's part of what the continuity is about how SROs handle situations on campus uniformly throughout the country, really, is based on this case, which has stood the test of time, and both of you know... And if there are any attorneys out there listening, that you don't often find 30-year-old cases that haven't had significant challenges or been overturned or modified or overruled in part. But TLO has really stood the test of time. And it's, it's, it's like I said, it was a two, it's a two-pronged standard, um, reasonable suspicion and reasonable relation. So the officer, the school resource officer or the administrator acting with the school resource officer they have to have reasonable suspicion that the search is justified, and the search has to be reasonably related to the reason they're searching. So, in a nutshell, give us an, that's give us an example. Give us an example of the second one. I get that. I think most of us get the reasonable suspicion part. But so, what, what would be an example of the second prong? Well, re, they really, really work together in this particular case because both of the standards are lower than what is normally thought of as reasonable suspicion in Fourth Amendment terms. Um, but reasonably related, for example, a, wep- a search for weapons is almost always going to be reasonably related. So, and a search for drugs, it, it's never going to exceed, exceed the objective of what is being searched for. So, let me just say, reasonable suspicion is that the search is justified as, at its inception, meaning it was conducted because the school officials thought there was evidence of a violation of law or a violation of school rules. And then because of that, the scope of the search can't exceed those reasons to search for a violation of law or school rules. They're really, they're really woven together as opposed to being, you know, separately defined. But So I think a lot of times we say, so let's say a student's acting out and uh, it's perceived that they're be they're acting out dangerously, or and they make a threat, and they say, "I've uh, I've got a weapon." So obviously, they're the opportunity to search the student, search the student's locker. What about the extension to the student's car in the parking lot on campus? So is that all part of those those two prong tests that you've just discussed? Well, it has to be on school ground. Okay. So if the co- there's a specific case that said that a search was not reasonable when a car was searched because it was parked on the street adjacent to the campus, but it wasn't legally or geographically actually school property. Right. So if the car is parked in a high school parking lot, for example, and that's part of the campus, then yes, if they're looking for that weapon, it has to be in a place where they think it might be. Okay, hang that, hang on to that thought. It has to be a place sure. where they think it might be. We're going to take our first break. 
We're talking with Cheryl Manley with the San Luis Obispo District Attorney's Office. This is Wagner and Winnick on the Law. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Monterey College of Law is excited to announce that we are opening our third branch law school in Bakersfield. We are Kern County College of Law, and we are an accredited branch of Monterey College of Law, established 44 years ago. We are now accepting applications for students who will begin in summer of 2017. As with our other branches in Monterey and San Luis Obispo, Kern County College of Law offers convenient evening classes Mondays through Thursdays. At Kern County College of Law, we have a tuition rate guarantee program that freezes your tuition rate when you begin and protects you from annual tuition increases. At Kern County College of Law, our faculty is composed of highly esteemed local lawyers and judges. Dream of becoming a lawyer? Do something about it. Call me, Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions of Kern County College of Law, 831-582-4000, extension 1012. For more information, Beginning with the Continental Congress in 1774, America's national legislative bodies have kept records of their proceedings. Did you know that these records are available to you online for free? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. Congress.gov is the official website for the U.S. House of Representatives and the U.S. Senate. It is published by the Library of Congress and includes the public records of the U.S. Congress, the Government Publishing Office, and the Congressional Budget Office. Remember, members of Congress work for us, and if you want to see what they're doing, go to congress.gov and watch the actual sessions of Congress, or look up any law that's being proposed. That's congress.gov, C-O-N-G-R-E-S-S dot gov. Many people believe that law firms are pretty much the same. At Shepard Mullen, we don't. Our law firm believes that what separates us from the pack is not what we do, but how we do it. Aggressive, not conservative. Team players, not one-man bands. Problem solvers, not just legal practitioners. Our clients clearly understand and value this difference. Shepard Mullen is a full-service Global 100 law firm with more than 750 lawyers. We handle corporate and technology matters, high-stakes litigation, and complex financial transactions. From our 15 offices in the U.S., Europe, and Asia, we offer global solutions and seamless representation to our clients around the world. I am Michael Cohen, a partner in the Antitrust and International Competition Group at Shepard Mullen. I invite you to find out more about our law firm at shepherdmullen.com. That's S-H-E-P-P-A-R-D-M-U-L-L-I-N.com. Welcome back. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. Our guest today is Cheryl Manley, Senior Deputy District Attorney in the San Luis Obispo District Attorney's Office. We're talking about the challenging issues related to, in this case, school resource officers, which is a category of police officer who works within the schools, in our public schools, K-12, and that, that some of the challenge it, it has been to determine 
how do you apply the constitutional rights of individual students to the school setting? So Cheryl, you were just you were just talking about the the two prong test of how we apply the Fourth Amendment to students, and you were saying that you know a search it has to be a reasonable grounds, reasonable suspicion, but it's limited to the school property itself. It can't extend on out to cars packed. What what about just the backpack on the kid's person? Is that different than a search that's going to be of their pockets? It could be. Um, what It all depends on um, what the students and parents and administrators and SRO's understanding is of what the written policy is on the school. All the schools that I'm aware of have written policies that say your property, your person is going to be subject to search when you come on campus, when you're on campus, and they agree to that and sign it. So it's this added contractual layer also um, justifies the lower standards of reasonable suspicion and reasonable relation. But yeah, there are, I would say, most instances if they suspect that there is some kind of school violation or law violation and they believe that um, there's something in the backpack, they, they can act on anonymous tips, they can have information from students, whatever the case may be. And it's always fact-specific, of course, but it's very likely that they could search a backpack. Mm-hmm. You know, Cheryl, what I wanted to add to this, and I think it's interesting because you just used uh, the term parent a couple times, and then you've also referenced school violations. I think it's important to note also that the school violation is a different dimension and a different factor that typically wouldn't apply in normal search and seizure scenarios. In other words, a, a belief, a reasonable belief that there was a violation on a public school campus can actually lead to a potential search. So it's so, That's Stephen, you're talking about a school, the distinction of a school rule versus a criminal act. Sure, sure. And I think Cheryl made, right. Cheryl point, you know, Cheryl made the point that it is always fact-specific. And that's, you know, we've had that talk when we talked about general police and citizen encounters. It, it's, it's always dependent upon the unique set of facts and circumstances, for sure. Um, the other thing, you know, I just wanted to add, Cheryl, and get your take on this is, you mentioned the parents' involvement. Uh, is there a um, an admissions phase or some kind of documentation when a, a public school student, let's say hypothetically, starts high school, where the parent is on notice of the role of a of a resource officer? It's my understanding, and I haven't seen all of the. Um school handbooks for this year, but um, I'm sure they're not that different, if at all, that um, minors can't enter into contracts, and this is a type of a contract in a way, but parents are always part of the process of information of what the, what is expected of the student. And it was a good point that there are, one of the reasons that reasonable suspicion is a lower standard than a typical Fourth Amendment contact Uh, contact off campus is because it's not just a violation of the law that leads to reasonable suspicion. It's a violation of any school rule. Maybe it's a non-criminal or, you know, a non-negative behavior kind of rule. But um, that's one of the reasons that standard is lower. And the parents are involved. The student 
They are involved as far as information and knowing what their student rights are once they come on campus in a written form. You know, one of the yeah. things that surprised me is that I, I guess I just assumed, let me just talk as a, a parent, not as a lawyer here. I just think I would have assumed that if a student resource officer, school resource officer has an interaction with my student and it's going to involve a search and then maybe a custody situation that I would very quickly be looped into the communication. And I would have thought that even by rule. But as I was doing a little of the reading about this, I, I guess that's not the case, is it? Well, I'm not I'm not sure what you mean by custody situation, but in general, um, parents and students are put on notice that there are these random searches, mm -hmm. and under reasonable suspicion, part of the reason they're justified at their inception is because there's a written policy that has everyone on notice that we do these periodic searches for purposes of making sure school rules are being followed and school safety is being maintained. The California Education Code says that school safety is the number one thing. Right. So, you know, every search is going to be justified if it's based legitimately on school safety. So, yeah, um, I can I, see that. It, I, I probably didn't answer your question. No, no, no. I, th well, you know, I, I, I think you did. Let me, do, let me jump in if I can just a moment because I think I, I know where Mitch was going, Cheryl. And it's, let, let, I'll try to weave a hypothetical. Let, let's say that there is initial contact between a school resource officer and a student who is, I'll go with, believed to be selling marijuana on campus. Mm -hmm. And it leads to a search. So it starts with a whimper and kind of ends with a bang. Let's say hypothetically the resource officer approaches the student because the officer knows that the student should be in class and he's not. So in other words, there's a school, there's a school rule, right? Are you with me? Right. And there's contact. And then that leads to the, the resource officer uh, believing or, or smelling marijuana and ultimately leads to a search. And let's say the marijuana is discovered. Well, I think where Mitch might have been heading is that this main, the next step here might be that the student is interviewed or asked to give a statement. That's right. So they're not represented. There's parents not been called. And I just would have, I guess I, as a parent, I would have assumed that would have been the next step. But I, but I guess it depends on what the school rule is. It, in part, it does. And often parents are contacted, especially if there is a violation of a school rule that's found immediately. And they're going to be, you know, have an in-school an in suspension or something like that, or the parent's going to be asked to come and take them home. So often the parent is looped in just because it's a good practice. And the schools, especially the school resource officers, they want the parents engaged in the student's conduct because it's all about prevention and, and helping these kids become law-abiding adults. So I think as a practical matter, not a legal matter, parents are often looped in. As far as if the parent is required to be contacted before an interrogation, not specifically, but they often are. And it really depends on what you mean by interrogation. There's a whole other legal way to describe interrogation and, 
And I don't see resource offices officers ever interrogating students in our county. But right. you know, if they're questioning them about it, there's a very low standard for detention on a school campus. It's even lower than the reasonable suspicion standard when someone is contacted off a school campus. It just yeah. can't be based on a hunch or harassing. So yeah, and I think I, I, I would that just, way. Yeah, I would just offer and add to that that if if the encounter did lead to a formal arrest, there's going to be a new set of constitutional safeguards in place. And well, well I was about to outcome. ask that, Stephen. I'm glad you're exactly. going that way. So, so yeah. at what point does a Miranda right come into the question? Well, that, that you were just uh, you were I, going there, right? Yeah, I, and I sense that's where you were headed too. Yeah. So I think at that point you're going to have a new set of safeguards and probably a new set of protocol, which might and usually will involve contact with a parent and also the usually the taped or tape recording of whatever uh, interrogation ensues I would think right um, once a, once a student is they call it temporary detention in the law but it really means arrest it's just they like to use you know softer words for juveniles I guess you could put it that way but yeah. essentially if student is under arrest then um, we're not talking about the lower TLO standards anymore for detention and search. So um, then a student has to be Mirandized under the Welfare and Institutions Code. So, yeah. So I would guess that that gray, that, not, I don't want to say gray area, but that time frame between when it's sliding from one lower standard up until the higher standard uh, as prosecutors probably gives you guys fits because... You know, now, now you're retroactively trying to figure out at what point did a line get crossed, right? Right, and you know, those are the kind of cases that will get litigated in a motion to suppress because any action involving a law enforcement officer is going could be challenged under the Fourth Amendment, even if the lower standard applies. Then you get into proving or you know disproving what actually happened, but. As far as the lower standard goes, that doesn't mean that they still can't challenge a particular search. There are gray areas, of course, and um, it, it's one of those things where the officers are very methodical. They don't do these kind of individualized searches unless they have good information, and it usually involves weapons or drugs. And then considering public safety and campus safety, then they'll proceed accordingly. The bottom line is they want their students to be safe. Sure. And they do everything they can legally to ensure that. But, you know, if a student feels like they were, you know, searched and it wasn't following even these lower standards, then, you know, they, they can challenge that. Let me go slightly different direction because you, you made me think of something else here. Let's, let's toss bullying in here for a moment. So there's not a, it's not an issue of a search. But the, the question is, you know, there's an aspect of bullying, and Stephen and I have done entire shows on this, that is normal teen, I shouldn't use bullying, there's an aspect of normal teen behavior that is a give and take of adolescence. There's clearly a point legally that it then crosses into a category that schools and others have called have contact as bullying and i'm sure school resource officers are brought into that with with some regularity uh, it 
it must be really hard for them to, to, to walk that fine line between what is school rules and roughhousing behavior and bullying, which could actually be a criminal act. So it must be really challenging for them to, to make those calls kind of all day long, every day. Right. It's, a, it's such a difficult job to be a school resource officer. It really is. There aren't any criminal bullying laws in California. There are ed code violations. We are one of the states where we haven't really caught up with some of the other states yet as far as, you know, making it criminal. There are certain criminal acts that when you have a bullying situation, you can charge, you know, uh, annoying, harassing phone calls or annoying, harassing inter internet contact, um, criminal threats, those kind of things. But most of the guidelines that define bullying are very vague, and they, they have to be. You're talking about a First Amendment issue most of the time, so you have to be re really careful how you word behavior to outlaw it. And then how do you describe bullying? It, it's very subjective a lot of times. I, you don't really get, for the most part, the overt, really horrible things that you think of when you think of bullying. A lot of times it's subtle, and you do have teenagers whose brains are not developed yet, who are very impulsive, who say things and don't have the life experience or the reasoning or the judgment to know the consequences of horrible words and then there's intent did they mean to say did they mean that they're going to kill that person you know you get kids all the time i'm going to kill you right what does that mean and so this whole area of bullying is still very very unlegislated and maybe it should be i, I well, let's know, hold it I on that thought because i want to come back to the issue yeah. of bullying yeah, when I, we come I back after too. this break yeah. you're listening to wagner and winnick on the law our guest is cheryl manley senior deputy district attorney in san luis obispo don't go away we will be right back If you've been considering a new career, now is the perfect time to look into the field of law. Whether you're fresh out of school or just thinking about change, the San Luis Obispo College of Law is now accepting applications for 2017 admission. The San Luis Obispo College of Law is an accredited branch of the Monterey College of Law School. You can get a law degree from an accredited law school right here in San Luis Obispo. San Luis Obispo College of Law's highly esteemed faculty is comprised of local judges and lawyers. San Luis Obispo College of Law classes are held conveniently in the evening. The San Luis Obispo College of Law's campus is located at 4119 Broad Street at Tank Farm in Slow. Make today the first step in changing your life. Attend an informational session and get answers to your questions. Call Dean of Admissions Wendy LaRiviere at 805-439-4096. Visit slowlaw.org for more information. That's slowlaw.org. Did you ever wonder, what is the basis of international law? Where would I even go to look up international laws? This is law professor Michael Cohen with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. The United Nations Treaty Collection is an online database that provides information on more than 560 treaties and international legal documents deposited with the United Nations. The database also indicates which countries have signed, 
ratified or lodged objections to the treaties. These legal agreements are the basis of international law. They cover topics such as human rights, disarmament, commodities, refugees, the environment, and the law of the sea. Lately, we have heard political candidates making lots of statements about enforcing international law. But if you want to be better informed about the actual laws in place, go to treaties.un.org. That is treaties.un.org. The U.S. Constitution has recently created national headlines in the debate about filling the vacancy created by the sudden death of Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia. The president and certain members of Congress are at odds about what the Constitution requires when there's a vacancy on the Supreme Court. Who is right? And how can everyday citizens be informed enough to know the answer? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. ConstitutionCenter.org is a website published by the National Constitution Center. The center was established by Congress to provide information about the United States Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. If you want information about the Constitution's history and what it means today, go to ConstitutionCenter.org and form your own opinion about the law. Welcome back. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. We're talking about legal issues related to primarily K-12 public schools. And and not surprising, the Constitution does come into play. Issues related to unreasonable search and seizure. And, and we've really moved now into an area of, of, of physical safety and the role that these... That, uh, school resource officers, SROs, play in maintaining that safe environment. So, so Stephen, you were about to jump in on the ba- uh, the bullying question that we're talking I was, about. Yeah, and Cheryl, I think you did a really good job uh, defining bullying and, and specifically identifying some of the challenging issues when it comes to really defining bullying and your reference to the First Amendment and, of course, the right to free expression is is. It's a thorny issue, especially when the expression leads to potential criminal acts. And I just wanted to add that, you know, the ironic feature of bullying is that it's got attributes of assault, potentially attributes of battery, potentially attributes of what Cheryl had referenced as criminal threats. So, you know, anytime the the verbal bullying escalates into something physical, I think Cheryl made the point that it could actually arise to a criminal act, and and that's that's what makes it uh, so serious. Um, and I don't know legislatively what what we can do about bullying. Um, it, it probably is a difficult one to define. I don't know, Cheryl. What do you think? Well, it is really difficult to define, and it. It's a lot like domestic violence cases. You have a lot of serious abuse that was unreported over a period of time. And in bullying, you'll have these physical crimes, these batteries, and these horrible acts that commit, are committed by one student on another that go unreported because the student is scared. And then what happens is, finally, when it comes to light, you have something that might be relatively minor. Like in domestic violence, you'll have... You know, you'll have, a, 
you know, a battery or something that's not as serious as any of the prior things, and then you have a case that's difficult to prove in court, and it's difficult to hold the minor accountable because you just have this last act and a series of really bad things that happen to the victim. And I've had a lot of victims, minor victims in court, in juvenile court, and it's heartbreaking. They're just so, you know, they're suicidal, they're just deflated, they, they're they just so depressed. And it's something that you wish you could do something about, but there are limits factually and legally as to what you can do. I don't think there's any legislation you could fashion without it being unenforceable. So I, I think we have to work with the laws that we have and deal with the criminal acts as they, you know, come to our attention and do the best we can in education and outreach. We in our office and I, along with the school resource officers, try to educate um, students and parents and speak to as many groups as we can to talk about, you know, accountability and when students cross the line with various things, drugs, weapons, um, you know, sexual issues, um, cyberbullying, bullying, those kind of things. It's just you have to kind of harbor this this atmosphere of respect, and I think that's where SROs are so important because they can be a real example on campus of how to behave and how to show respect. And this lack of respect is what, you know, breeds this horrible bullying that goes on, and it really does go on. It's just I don't think there's any way you could have a, a bullying law. Yeah, so, no, I would agree with you. So, Cheryl, I, I I probably know the answer to this, but let me just you know balance this out a little. There are studies that discuss that in schools who have SROs, that there is perhaps as many as three times as many criminal arrests as schools that don't. And so I guess the parents are concerned that rather than leaving the responsibility with the school district and school officials, the minute you bring police into it, it increases the risk that a criminal charge is going to come out of what might otherwise have been resolved as just student behavior that could be done with uh, in-school suspension or something like that. You know, what, what are your thoughts about that? I could see where parents would be concerned that that could be the outcome. There are so many aspects to this. There are theories and um, opinions that are being asserted as fact that police and school resource officers on campus are leading to more incarceration of students. The school-to-prison pipeline is something that you hear pretty commonly. I maybe based on my experience, and I've been doing juveniles. This I've done juveniles in other counties the caseload and I've done this for almost eight years now my experience is I am very skeptical about those studies and statistics I've gone onto some of the websites where these studies have been promoted and published and you know given to the school districts as a warning that they need to have SROs off campus and the questions that are that the statistics are based on are very general and I'm, I'm always leery of statistics anyway, ever since I took 
statistics in college. <laughs> so <laughs> well, wait a minute, I, you're <laughs> trodden on some of my favorite territory here, as Stephen will tell you. I love trotting out statistics on this show. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, it, you, you always have to take them with a grain of salt, absolutely, right? I mean, absolutely, absolutely. And you have to consider I, the source. <laughs> that's true, and you have to consider the um, sample size. Exactly. So, um, and what kind oh, of boy, here we go. they're getting. <laughs> well, okay, I, did I say a buzzword there, sample size? That's okay. But I, so, anyway, um, with, with these, I don't believe it. I'll okay. just, bottom line. So you I haven't seen it in all the years that you've been doing it. You haven't seen that kind I, of an influence. I, I haven't, and I believe that school campuses are safer because SROs are present. I think that when students feel safe, they learn. And when parents know that SROs are on campus, they don't worry about their students. You, know, you can no longer assume, like in our parents' generation, school was a safe place, essentially. Right. And, you know, you had the typical, you know, schoolyard stuff going on. But we don't assume that anymore today. Yeah. And there's so... I. If I had a child on campus right now, I would want someone there that I knew if something happened, like the kid who wheeled the knife at Reno High School campus last week, I, or, you know, the, and there's just hundreds of things you could cite. But I would want to know that there is someone there whose sole duty is to protect my kid. So let me throw and, one, one more so. part into this, and Stephen, Stephen won't be surprised when I throw this in. You know, we've done a number of shows on Second Amendment and gun rights, and in one of those shows, there was a whole discussion about, well, every, if every teacher had a handgun, then we would be that much more safe from some of these tragedies that had happened. And so, yeah, you know, what, uh, I, you know, as Stephen knows, I, of course, think that's ludicrous. That's not the role that I think teachers should have. Even though, Cheryl, I will add that Mitch is from Texas. That's true, and I'm a staunch Second Amendment supporter. <laughs> it's just I have, I believe there's there are lines you draw, and I mean they seriously were talking about every teacher should be, if it may be not required to be trained to have a handgun, but should be encouraged. Well, that's a real loaded question. Part of the pun. But, um, <laughs> but you, you know, it's it's a really important one because my feeling is, and this is my personal feeling, but it's based on my professional experience and as a staunch supporter of the Second Amendment, that teachers are there to teach students. That's one of the reasons that SROs are so valuable because. Teachers should not have to worry that if they have to break up a fight and risk their own, you know, physical well-being. SROs are trained to risk their physical well-being. They're trained to use these weapons. I don't think teachers should necessarily be put in the position of deciding when they're going to use a gun. I believe that a person should be able to, I believe in carry, concealed carry. I think a person should be able to defend themselves and protect themselves with a gun. When you're talking about the school setting, I think it's important that the SROs are there and have a weapon and can stop a student. Yeah, well, fair enough. I think that's yeah. exactly right. I, you know so, what, I, I think we need, we need to do another segment on this because it would be unfair to introduce, I want to reference some of the ACLU their white paper and their studies that seem to 
support or advocate an argument that the presence of the SROs are potentially unconstitutional. It's unfair to try to get there now while we're on the tail of our segment, but we should address that issue. I think that's fair that. enough. What I, what I would like to get, Stephen, is let's, let's toss in, because I think this is, a, again, we're continuing to weave our other uh, show topics in, but a reminder that when we were talking about search and seizure, as we identified before, new laws on cell phones. So the reasonable expectation of a student mm -hmm. that their cell phone, particularly, let's say, in the, in the circumstance of alleged bullying, is going to be subject to, to searches. That's right. That, right. That's right. It's, you know, recently in California, well, you know, we had the Riley case and um, the Riley case requires a warrant to search a cell phone, which really um, kind of turned the law on its head because... Prior to that, you could search a cell phone if it was incident to arrest or in other um, circumstances. So it was an exception to the warrant requirement. Well, that's no longer the case. But recently, in the Inray Raphael C. case, the court refused to extend that warrant requirement to search of a cell phone on school campus. Wow. So, which is Yeah, which is really... Um, a testament to TLO's longevity when you think about it because that is really the reason that they refused to extend it, among other things. But the fact that that standard is cemented in the whole school search law, it made it pretty easy for the court to decide. And also what is really important is, again, the written school policies that um, justify a search. In this case, you know, that students knew that their cell phone is going to be subject to search because that's part of the school rules and that's part of what they were noticed of. So, well, so thank yeah, you. you still search a school, the cell phone on school campus. Well, thank you, Cheryl. This, you've been listening to Cheryl Manley, our guest today on Wagner and Winnick on the Law. She's the Senior Deputy District Attorney and the San Luis Obispo District Attorney's Office. Cheryl, I think based on today's show, I think probably every parent would wish that they had the, the level of, of thoughtfulness that both obviously your District Attorney's Office has, but the SROs you've talked about in your school districts there. So congratulations, job well done. Well, thank you. I'm very proud of them. Well, sounds like this well worth it. Stephen, good show. Glad to have you on today. Thanks, Mitch. Thanks, Cheryl. <laughs> it's you've been Thanks, listening. Steve. Thank you, Mitch. You're welcome. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. Uh, welcome to, oh, as always, our listeners not only here on KSCO AM 1080, but our listeners on. VoiceAmerica.com, KVEC in San Luis Obispo, KERN in Bakersfield, and KSMA in Santa Maria. So, as always, we remind you, you can listen to a replay of today's shows on VoiceAmerica.com. And, as we remind you each week, if you don't know the law, know a lawyer.
ever finished college. I had a baby and it was time for me to do more with my life. I wanted to be an attorney and be able to help people, but I didn't know I could go to law school without a four-year degree. I decided to go to Monterey College of Law because it's local and I was working full-time and had a child. So quitting work and going to a full-time law school was not really an option for me. Being able to go to school at night and the cost of tuition allowed me to graduate debt-free. Obviously my income has increased. My schedule is more flexible now and it does allow me to spend more time with my daughter. My name is Brandi Luis and I'm an attorney at law. Did you dream of becoming a lawyer? You should know that you can apply to Monterey College of Law without a bachelor's degree. I'm Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions of Monterey College of Law. We're accepting applications now for our spring start. Dream of becoming a lawyer? Do something about it. Find out how at montereylaw.edu. It is one thing to argue with your friends at the bar, but have you ever wondered what it would be like to argue in front of the United States Supreme Court? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. Oye.org, spelled O-Y-E-Z dot O-R-G, is a website published by the Free Law Project at Chicago Kent School of Law. You can go to Oye.org and listen to 60 years of actual oral arguments at the United States Supreme Court. Written summaries are provided for cases that go all the way back to 1789. OEA.org also provides biographical information on every United States Supreme Court justice and offers an online tour of the Supreme Court building. Go to OEA.org to see if you have what it takes to present a winning argument. Shepard Mullen is a full-service Global 100 law firm with more than 750 lawyers. We handle corporate and technology matters, high-stakes litigation, and complex financial transactions. From our 15 offices in the United States, Europe, and Asia, we offer global solutions and seamless representation to our clients around the world. You might ask, what is the Shepard Mullen difference? The answer is you. Our clients are our focus. Every Shepard Mullen attorney and staff member is issued a plaque listing our client service expectations. We regularly give clients first awards to attorneys and staff members who go the extra mile for our clients. Client service is not just words, it is part of our culture and permeates everything we do. I am Michael Cohen, a partner in the Antitrust and International Competition Group at Shepard Mullen. I invite you to find out more about our law firm at shepherdmullen.com. That's S-H-E-P-P-A-R-D-M-U-L-L-I-N.com. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.